One of the unfortunate realities of the modern world is scammers everywhere. <laughs> scammers on the internet, scammers on phone calls. Um, oftentimes, I've, multiple times, they get a phone call and someone, I don't know if any of you have had this, I've experienced a few times, Alina has, of saying that you have an overdue IRS bill that's due in two weeks, but you need to go to Walgreens. Because <laughs> I don't know what's going on with the IRS nowadays. Uh, ever, yeah, ever since John left, it's all been downhill, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then, or, you know, all things online. You get emails and these things, and sometimes church ones are, are really bad as well. I remember I was, I used to be an administrative assistant at a church, and we'll get all of these, like, cold call scammers trying to, um, not even people walking in the door, like, people calling and talking about how, you know, they need help for their choir or something. Because, um, like, who, what choir needs money? I don't know about that. But... <laughs> You know, they, they try it, or they say that, you know, your, your cousin or your grandson is in Argentina or Indonesia, and, you know, and that they, they need help, they need money wired immediately, and they know the name, they know the name, they know these intimate details, and it's scary, and they're trying to panic you, and they're trying to panic you and make you not think rationally, and to, to convince you, or they try and convince you um, that you need a bunch of health supplements, that you need all of these pills or all of these oils and you need to take them and they're really just chalk. Um, but that you need to take them in order to be your alpha self or whatever self you think you need to be in order to be the person that society tells you to be and just to go through these kinds of things. Who should you trust in this world? Who should you trust in this world? How do you know what to trust? How do you know who to trust in this world? It could be a scary question. We're continuing, though, in our series on what is the Bible. And this is going to come back to it. And just give me a second. But what is the Bible? Last week we began it. How is the Bible different? Not just thinking about looking at individual books of the Bible, but taking a balcony view, taking a meta view, thinking of the big picture of what's going on. What is the Bible? Last week we spoke about how the Bible is sacred, how it is set apart, how it is different from other books. This week we're going to look at how the Bible is God-breathed, how it is inspired. In Greek, the word Paul uses is theonustos. Theo meaning God, and nustos from the spirit, breath. God-breathed. As we think about how the Bible is God-breathed and claim that the Bible is inspired, we must still admit that the Bible has been abused in the past. Just like people can use the names of your loved ones to abuse you. They can take a name that is special, that is sacred, and use it to kind of twist and take. In the temptation narratives of Jesus, we see that the devil quotes scripture back to Jesus every time. There's not, the Bible is not this kind of thing that cannot be used for bad ways. In the Gospel of Mark, in the reading today, we see about teachers in flowing robes. Who devour widows' houses. And what, isn't that a great example of the scammers today? People who devour widow and widowers' houses. Who are trying to catch people at their most vulnerable and take and exploit. There are a lot of false teachers who are claiming to be looking out for your best interest. Right? There are a lot of false teachers who are claiming to look out for your good but are really trying to take from you. But who decides who the false teachers are? Who decides who the true ones are? In the same way, who decides what the good uses or bad uses of the Bible are? 
Before we get to that, I want to talk about what the Bible is again and how some Christians have tried to pretend that the Bible exists apart from those who read it and use it. And this is an example one of my teachers used to say. And so they would take the Bible and say, okay, what is the Bible saying to you right now? It's not, it's, is it talking? No. No. Yeah. It's you know, the kind of an obvious thing, but you kind of get into this high-mightiness talking about the Bible speaks, the Bible talks in this kind of way. And we must remember that the Bible does not communicate apart from the people reading it, apart from the people who respond to it. In the last 200 years, some have misunderstood the word inspired, the word theonustos, the word God-breathed, to mean inerrant or without error. And this has happened due to a lot of historical circumstances that have gone on. The early readers of the Bible, the early Christians, they believed the Bible was the word of God, but they did not look at it as a science textbook. In order to understand the kind of shift of emphasis from what is inspired to what is without error, we have to go through a lot of history of the world, but also the idea of history, the idea of what history can be, what is historical, what a fact is, and what an error is. Some of this goes to the 15th century, to those um, early textual analysis. If you were here last week, we talked about the different ways scribes could make little errors, and most of them were really marginal. Most of them was like duplicating a word or subtracting a word or putting an accent in a different place. But there would be these first textual arguments. And then then in the 18th and 19th century, you see this flourishing of what's become to be known as historical critical study and looking at taking the text of the scripture and putting it into the context of the, the greater context of the Middle East and looking at other languages, other Semitic languages and what comes out of it. And one of those things that, you know, what is unique about the Hebrew Bible is it's the only real text of ancient Hebrew. And so there's some words in here that only have one attestation. And so an attestation only occurs once. It only occurs once in the history of all language. And so you can't really... So we kind of guess at what it means in that kind of way. And some people in the, in the last 200 years have taken, well, in ancient Sumerian, there's a similar word. So maybe it's comparable to that word. And so that's kind of some of the, like, the historical critical work at its best, is taking stuff that is kind of can be confusing apart from its broader history. But as well, it gets even more complicated than that. Um, you know, and you, as I mentioned last week, you dig a little and this whole world emerges. Because the study of the Bible in the 18th and 19th century is the context of the study of all of human history. As the whole science of history, the whole study of history emerges at this time. It comes around, around the study of the scriptures. And the creation of the, the rise of Prussian universities, like the University of Berlin, which is like, goes way off into giant tangents that I would love to travel in, but I'm going to keep focused. Um, <laughs> but it's well like the study for the historical Jesus and people trying to find this historical Jesus and separate the Jesus of history from the Jesus of faith. And as Albert Schweitzer once said, whenever, whoever is trying to find the Jesus of history, they end up looking like the person looking for him. And so a Quaker historian of Jesus finds a Quaker Jesus. A Presbyterian quest for Jesus is a Presbyterian Jesus. And then a Methodist looking for the historical Jesus finds the actual Jesus, but that's okay. (laughs) But, But inerrancy comes out of a response to these critical challenges. Critical challenges like maybe Moses didn't write the first five books of Moses. It is a response that says the Bible is without error. But what it does is it takes this modern category of error and accepts it. 
and then says, okay, um, we, will, we will challenge, we will, say, like, we will say no to that. The error is not a, a topic in the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about error. There's not a lot of errors. Error is like an industrial word. It's when, you know, the factory kind of goes off kilter. Um, it's, not, it's not a word that's used in the Bible a lot. The Bible talks about sin. Um, the Bible talks in, in that kind of, of language. Instead of responding, though, to the historical challenges of the text, or pointing out the historical critical scholars are misreading the text, they take the critical category of error and say that the Bible doesn't have an error and respond in that way. Or to put it in another way, they, they accept the methodology of these historical critical scholars, but say the conclusions are wrong. And this gets back to what many who think that the Bible is perspicacious, which is a really big, awkward word that really just means that the Bible is, is clear and evident and not confusing, which I don't know. There's a lot of people who believe this. I don't know what, what Bible they're reading, but um, the belief assumes that the Bible is flat and obvious and that there's only one reading. And if you don't have the same reading as the other people, then you are wrong and you need to be controlled. This is different from a medieval understanding of the scriptures, and which has there are multiple ways of reading one passage. And so there would be the literal sense. And the literal sense comes from the Latin litera, which means the letter. And so it would be looking at the actual letters. What do these letters mean? And then there's the allegorical or the symbolic sense that looks at, okay, what is, what's the metaphor of what's going on? What are ways that we can interpret this? And then there's the moral sense that has a fun word called tropological, which I think is really great. Um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not tropical, it's tropological. It's, it's the moral sense. Um, and that's looking at what, how does it affect me? What can it do for our lives? How can our lives be changed by this? And then there's the last one, the ultimate sense, the um, eschatological, or, and this is the other word I love, anagogical. Anagogical. You never use that in, other, in daily life. Um, but the anagogical is to look at how does this point to our future life with God? And I think one of the best ways of understanding these four, four different senses is thinking about the sacrament of baptism or the sacrament of communion. And so you have the sacrament of baptism. And at first, the literal sense, you have the water, right? And so you can remain at the level of the water. But then you have the allegorical sense. You have the sense of new birth, the sense of, of new life, of what's going on. And then you have the moral sense of this life has changed now, and I'm going to respond in this change, by living into that. And then you have the eschatological sense of this points to my future life with God, that I am now a part of God's kingdom in a new and full way. And all of those meanings are present in the same act. They're not, you can't like separate them out in this distinct kind of way. And so that's what the medieval understanding of scriptures would be, that each verse was able to hold all of these meanings at the same time. And there's an abundance of overflowing of God's love and wisdom found in that. It gives lots of opportunities, though. These, for people, they, they get, get defensive about the scripture. They get defensive and anxious because if it doesn't, it doesn't fit in to the one, to the flat reading that, ha, that goes on. They get, they get defensive and anxious views that fixate so much on the literal until, until it does it. And so you move, this passage is little, but this passage is symbolic, but there's not really a tool to tell the difference. And then that even goes again. And it again comes back to this individual picking and choosing from these historical critical categories of error and fact that, again, aren't found. The Bible doesn't talk about facts. That's not a category that God, that God reveals. In. The Bible talks about truth. 
The Bible doesn't talk about error, it talks about sin. It talks about missing the mark of God's response in our life. And people trying to control the gift of God and to control behavior of others. And it gives lots of opportunity for teachers in flowing robes <laughs> to come out and to deceive and bewitch people, to take people away from the presence of God. And yet God is here. And yet God is here. And even though this book has been abused in the past, God is here. As Karl Barth said, the biblical concept of inspired, of theonoustos, points us not to the past, but to the present, to the event which occurs for us. Scripture has this priority. It is the word of God, but it also points us, points us to it. It is not a substitute for it. It does not create it for us. Or to put it another way, the Bible is not a substitute for Jesus. We do not worship the Bible. The Bible is where God is found. The Bible is where God is found. We do not stand on the rock of the Bible, but on the rock of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is found here. God is here, but God is not here apart from a people called to be the body of Christ. And so we are able to make this claim of faith that God is here and that these words are inspired in ways that we are not used to reading, that we don't read this book like we read other books. God is here in the literal sense. God is here in the symbolic sense, in the moral sense, in the ultimate sense, God is here. But as the body of Christ, we read it together. And again, I think it is so helpful to use the language of St. Augustine, the questions that he asks. Do we see the love of God and the love of neighbor here? And if we do not, we are not reading it right. As well, we don't need to defend the Bible to the antagonists outside the faith. Throughout the scriptures, it shows that there are going to be persecutors. There are going to be persecutors of those who are faithfully following God. There are going to be people who try and tear it down, who try and tear down God's work no matter what. God does not ask us to defend the Bible, but to give an account of love, to be able to respond in charity and hope and caring for the people around us to be able to respond to the truth revealed here, and not just to the words themselves, not to the letters themselves, but to the God revealed here. Take this book. Take this book. Read it. God is here. Do not fall for the, ta- for the traps of teachers in flowing robes. That is why we are gathered together as the body of Christ, to read the book together, to study the book together, so we don't deceive ourselves. When we are left to our own devices, we think we have all the answers. So we don't fall for the traps of others. So we don't fall for the traps of the loudest people in the room, the, the people who threaten us and cajole us. Take this book. Don't be ashamed. If you feel like you haven't read it enough or you haven't studied it enough, start today. Start today. Start with Mark. Start with James. Start with Jonah. Seek the Lord. It's amazing. Today, you can have the Bible on your phone. People have phones. You can just get the Bible on it. It's amazing. You can have the Word of God and share it anywhere. Seek the Lord. Pray, oh God, I am looking for you. Show me the way. Show me the way. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, spoke of the means of grace, of the fact that God moves in mysterious ways, but we know that God moves in certain ways. And if we want to seek God, if we want to seek out love in our life, we are going to do these things. They include worshiping together. They include the sacraments. They include feeding the hungry. They include 
searching the scriptures. The God is present and God will respond to us when we seek God here. Taking the time, not being afraid. The Bible is not this house of cards where one day we have to worry about it falling apart and then our faith will fall apart. The Bible is the swaddling clothes where Jesus is found. Dig a little. It's not a sword. It's a gift. It is an offering. It is God-breathed. It is God-breathed. Hear my words, Lord. Hear my words, Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.